The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of, ne of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God, the God of heaven. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? <clears throat> uh, this can be nothing but uh, sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is you want? What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Verse 11 of chapter two. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray briefly. Father, thank you for what we've encountered and experienced and heard so far. May you continue to speak to us. Please speak through your word to each one of us and help us to hear clearly 
what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. I got really worried when Ben started. I thought, you know, I was crossing off. That's no, no need to say that. No need to say, I might as well just go home, I thought. <laughs> no. As Ben said today, we begin our series on Nehemiah called following, Nehemiah, Following God's Heart. Now, originally, I was due to give the second talk. The first talk was meant to be last week, but the program was changed, so I get to do the first talk as well. So I thought this morning's a bit like busters, isn't it, you know? I haven't spoken for four months, and now I get to do two at, the se- two, two at once. It's ex- it's ex- <laughs> Hope so. Exciting, isn't it? Well, you might like to see it as a bog off, you know, buy one, get one free. And, and uh, thanks to Phil Banting, who gave, us, gave me this title, A God-Given Purpose. Now, let me ask you, who remembers the A-Team from the 1970s? Some Christians didn't watch it because it was too violent, but they never actually killed anybody. They were the worst shots in the world, actually. Um, but in most episodes, towards the end, the leader, Hannibal Smith, who you can see at the middle at the bottom there, would say, I can't do the American accent, I love it when a plan comes together. And I think that's the great summary of the book of Nehemiah. I love it when a plan comes together. Now, I'm covering a lot of material today, but don't panic. Thank you, John. You read that really well. That was a challenge. Um, So I'm going to stick to the normal time, but obviously I can't cover everything. So I tried to pick out the key events in in the readings. It was quite challenging. Coincidentally, I'm I'm doing the book of Nehemiah in my daily devotionals and using this book here, which I was going to kind of recommend, the Journey Through series. They do a whole lot of different books of the Bible. If you want to talk to me afterwards, you could do that. And this has been really helpful. This is where I got all the dates and stuff from without having to look on the internet. Um, There's quite a challenge in Ezra chapter 8, sorry, Nehemiah chapter 8, where Ezra, his kind of friend, the people gather together and they spend six hours listening to Ezra reading the Old Testament. So even if I go on a little bit longer, then we we can't really complain, can we? Now, many years ago, in a previous reincarnation, I was a project manager for BOC, British Oxygen Company, in Rotherham in South Yorkshire. Now, my role was to to do different things, but basically to manage the project, to prepare documents for tender, to liaise with the design department, to liaise with the contractor who got the tender, to make sure the purchasing department bought the materials. I look back, you know, I wonder how a young, good-looking lad like me in my late 20s could do a job like that. And I was so grateful for my supportive boss and the team I worked with and for God's help. I think I did all right in project management, but Nehemiah did brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly at project management. I think if he was around today, in his retirement, he'd be giving after-dinner speeches on how to manage a project. HS2 would come in on, on budget if Nehemiah was in charge of the project. In fact, he'd finish earlier. It only took him 52 days to build this wall. And any of you want to grow in those kind of skills, in leadership skills or project management skills, study Nehemiah. There's so much in it for us. Now, you might have heard the clever saying from Stephen Covey. He wrote this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I've never read. Um, But one of the things he said is, it should come up on the screen, that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Give you a moment to kind of think what is that all about. But it's actually, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I think he must have got that from Nehemiah. Nehemiah, what was the main thing? 
building the walls back around Jerusalem. That was the focus of his life because he knew that's what God wanted him to do. So we're going to do a whistle-stop tour through chapters 1, 2, and a bit of 3. And I just want to draw out some points. Now, I realize we're not all going to be like Nehemiah, but maybe there's one or two things that will stand out for you personally. And I think also maybe for us as a church, because like we saw in those video clips, it's a, it was a group project. He couldn't have done it on his own. You see the leader in quite a few of those little clips, don't you? But then he needed everyone else to do what he said for it to work. So the story begins with Nehemiah, a Jew, in exile, as Ben said, in Susa. It's actually the Persian Empire now. We've gone from Assyria to Babylon to Persia. Greeks and Romans still to come. Uh, Susa is about 850 miles away from Jerusalem, which is a long way to travel in those days. That's where he is. So let's just, I've got just nine points, which sounds a lot, but they're going to be done very quickly, don't worry. <laughs> That's like three Anglican sermons, isn't it? Nine points. The first one Ben stole from me, which was his job. He was cupbearer to the king. He was a kind of butler like Carson in down, Downton Abbey, if you're into Downton Abbey. And, and as Ben also said, it was his job to make sure the king didn't get poisoned. He was in a trusted position, actually serving the ruler of an empire which occupied his homeland. Which is worth thinking about, isn't it? He served a king whose empire was in occupation of his homeland. I think that's a challenge for us who work in a secular or an ungodly environment. Or maybe wherever we work. I think God wants us, doesn't he, to be salt and light, to do a good job, to work hard, to be honest, trustworthy, and reliable. When I told my boss at BOC that I was leaving, in a typical Yorkshire style, he used colorful language to tell me what he thought about it. I'd like to think he was trying to tell me that he'd miss me, but who knows, you never can tell. So he's, that was his job. See, they're quite quick, these points. Secondly, he has a heart for God and for his people. In verse 2, his brother arrives from Jerusalem. And so he says, how are things going in Jerusalem? An obvious question to ask. It's actually late autumn in 446 BC. We know how exact it is because it tells us in, in, in the passage. And he's told things are bad. Ninety years earlier, the first exiles had returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and they built the temple, the temple that Jesus walked around in. They rebuilt it, but they hadn't finished the job. The walls and the gates of the city were in ruins. The city was vulnerable to enemies around them. So how does he respond when he hears this news? Does he say, it's not my problem? I've got a good job here. I'll say a quick prayer for them. I might even give a little note for my brother to take back and to encourage them when he gets back. No, he doesn't. In verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I wonder how we respond when we hear bad news, maybe about some Christians who are suffering in some other part of the world. Now, obviously, we get a lot more information coming into our heads in one day than Nehemiah got in his whole life. So we have to be careful here, don't we? But maybe there's perhaps just one or two people or some mission agency that we could take on board and think that we could pray and support them and, and care for them. If you're not doing that, if you're not sure, then maybe pick one of our church's mission partners to, 
to make a little project for you to care and support. You can always see me afterwards or one of the missions team. So he has a heart for God and his people when he hears that news, and his response is to pray. In verses 5 to 11, it records his prayer. Now, we haven't got time to look at it, but just to say it's an excellent model of prayer to follow. Now, I'm always saying this, and that it's not a shopping list of requests. When prayer, I think, is seen as just a list, a shopping list, it gets really boring, doesn't it? It gets boring for us, and I wondered if it actually gets boring for God as well. Now, there's a prayer meeting tonight, so I've got to be careful what I say. But can you imagine a friend? Every time you see this friend, they have a list of jobs for you to do. Or can you get me this and do that and do the other? Well, there wouldn't be very much of a friendship. And Nehemiah doesn't do that in his prayer. It includes and begins with praise. He reminds God, acknowledges who God is. Then he confesses the sins of the people and his own sins as well. He includes himself. He talks about we. And then he reminds God of his promises in Scripture. I think praying around the Scriptures is stimulating. That was a great passage that Ben read this morning. That would be a great passage to pray over from Jeremiah, wouldn't it? That God would do it. Not just read it, but to pray over it. And then he has only one request. He only asks for one thing. And if I get the next page, we'll see what it is. <laughs> Verse 11. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. All he asks for is that when he speaks with the king, the king will be nice to him. If you do get a chance to look at the book of Nehemiah, there are quite a few times when he prays. His prayer life is a fantastic thing to learn from. So just just leave that with you. So he prays, and then he waits. He actually says, give me success today, but he waits four months. Chapter 2, verse 1 is four months later. It's now the spring of 445 B.C. But I imagine that he's been praying, thinking, planning, just waiting for the chance to speak to the king. And sometimes prayer's like that, isn't it? We have a prayer we desperately want answered, but we have to wait. I'm still waiting for some important prayers to be answered. So he waits. And then one day, number five, he gets his chance to speak with the king. He goes in with the wine and the food or whatever it is, and he's looking sad. Now, apparently looking sad in front of the king could lead to death. Whatever job you've got, the working practices have improved since then, haven't they? So he actually says, I was very much afraid. He's scared, but he knows that this is the chance. And so he then tells the king why he's looking so sad. He says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. It's always good to. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? What a challenge that is, don't you think, to us? Do we take opportunities to speak of our faith when the chance comes? I find this really difficult. A couple of weeks ago, coincidentally, we were on holiday in South Yorkshire. And I think on the first night, we went to Hornsey, and we sat on the bench on the seafront eating fish and chips, really nice fish and chips. And on the bench next to us were a couple who had a dog that looked just like our dog, Stevie. We kept thinking, is it one of Stevie's offspring? But we didn't... 
Anyway, of course, we got talking to them. And Kathy had about a 20-minute chat about dogs with them. I noticed he'd got a football shirt on that I didn't recognize, and he said he'd come from Doncaster. I thought, so I said, is that a Doncaster Rovers football shirt? And he said, no, it's a Leeds United away football shirt. Horrible shirt. But, uh. <laughs> so, so we ended up having a discussion about football. If you don't know, I'm a Nottingham Forest fan. I've got my season ticket for the Premier League. So we had, we had a 20-minute conversation about football. And afterwards, I thought, how can I find it so easy to talk football forever? How would I bring in the fact that I believe in God or I've got a faith and that kind of things? I really don't know. So if you've got any ideas, let me know. So he took his chance to speak. Nehemiah wasn't afraid to declare his faith in God. And when he's asked to speak, he knows what he wants. He's thought it through, he's ready. Because the king says, what is it you want? Nehemiah doesn't say, I'm not sure yet. I'll have to go away and think about it or... Could you find someone and send them to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls for me? No. He says, can I go? Can you let me free, king, to go back to Jerusalem to build this wall? And also, can you write a couple of letters for me so that I can get some materials and so that the people will give me a safe travel? He's ready in advance for what's coming. That challenged me as well. Maybe I should have done this before I had the chips on the bench at Hornsey to think, what do I? Other things I can think about beforehand to say. For example, if someone says to us, you or me next week, what did you do last night? And you say, I went to the church home group. It's usually the end of the discussion, isn't it? Let's be honest. And I was thinking, maybe if I could say something like, well, I met with some friends from church and discussed what we saw is important in life. And we find it we find it really hard to live in this world the way it is. And so we met, we talked about some guy from the Old Testament and find it quite helpful and quite stimulating. I got some good ideas. Maybe they'll say, what ideas? I don't know. Number seven, so he goes to Jerusalem, a journey of several months. And the uh, first thing he does when he gets there is have a little rest because he's tired. And then he goes out. And he discovers the first-hand reality on the ground. He goes out at night on his horse with a few other people to look at what the situation is. I thought Gru in the Minion thing did that. He really defined reality, didn't he, <laughs> at the beginning? We're not going to the moon. It's terrible. But at least he defined reality for the people. So Nehemiah assesses what needs to be done. And it's important to do that, you know, with any initiative, to be honest. We might say he did an audit quite pleased to see that Artaxerxes didn't ask for a risk assessment or, or that Nehemiah wear a high-vis jacket when he went out at night. The Christian businessman and, and writer Max Dupree said this, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. I'd say it's the first responsibility of all of us just to own up and say it like it is. So why do many of us pretend that things are all right when they're not? You know, afterwards you might have a cup of coffee with someone. How are you? I'm all right. Classic Birmingham answer. But there's been several times in my life when it's felt like the walls, when it's felt my life was like the walls of Jerusalem in total ruin. And today there are bits of my wall, if you like, that are in disrepair. And I guess that's probably true for at least some of us here. So why don't we admit it and 
learn to move forward together. Nehemiah had to admit the wall was a mess before they could start to rebuild it. What about the church in the UK? It's not doing very well, you know. People are not lining up to become Christians. In fact, they're leaving in huge numbers. If you, you can look at so many surveys on the internet, and it's not just among young adults. That's reality. So how are we going to respond? Well, Nehemiah responds by motivating and organizing the people, which we, again we saw in the little video clips. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began to rebuild. And in chapter 3, it lists all the different groups and the different bits of the wall that they built. It doesn't sound very interesting to us, does it? But notice the high priests and the other priests built the sheep gate. That's a bit like the archbishop and the bishops building. Everybody was involved. But why start with the sheep gate? Well, the sheep gate was closest to the temple where they went to worship. It was vital to repair the sheep gate so they could get access and worship God. And you'll notice that when they've built it, there's a service of dedication. Nehemiah is making a statement. The worship of God will, is and will be a priority through this building project. And I guess the same is true today in any plans or projects we have individually or together that worship is a priority. So here's my nine points. Yeah, so, so there's a lot to learn from Nehemiah and there's more to come. There's, even, there's a lot more to come in future weeks. As I said, we maybe not all feel called or gifted to be Nehemiah, but maybe we can learn from his example. Maybe there's something in that list that, that something that God would speak to you, or maybe together as a church, as we want to build the kingdom. So my prayer is simply that we'll take something away this morning that encourages us and inspires us. So shall I just pray and then perhaps take a moment and just reflect on that? Father, we thank you for what we can learn from a man who lived uh, two and a half thousand years ago nearly and pray that you, by your spirit today, might help us to know what you want us to take away. May we be men and women who follow his example and know what the, your purpose is, what the God-given purpose is for our lives, individually and also together as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.